Chapter Eight of the Promised Land. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. The Promised Land by Mary Anton. Chapter Eight. The Exodus. On the day when our steamer ticket arrived, my mother did not go out with her basket. My brother stayed out of header, and my sister salted the soup three times. I do not know what I did to celebrate the occasion. Very likely, I played tricks on Deborah and wrote a long letter to my father. Before sunset, the news was all over Polotsk that Hannah Haya had received a steamer ticket for America. Then they began to come, friends and foes, distant relatives and new acquaintances, young and old, wise and foolish, debtors and creditors, and mere neighbors, from every quarter of the city, from both sides of the Divina, from all over the Palata, from nowhere. A steady stream of them poured into our street, both day and night, till the hour of our departure. And my mother gave audience, her faded kerchief half way off her head, her black ringlets straying, her apron often at her eyes. She received her guests in a rainbow of smiles and tears. She was the heroine of Polotsk, and she conducted herself appropriately. She gave her heart's thanks for the congratulations and blessings that poured in on her, ready tears for condolences, patient answers to monotonous questions, and handshakes and kisses and hugs she gave gratis. What did they not ask, the eager, foolish, friendly people? They wanted to handle the ticket, and mother must read them what is written on it. How much did it cost? Was it all paid for? Were we going to have a foreign passport, or did we intend to steal across the border? Were we not all going to have new dresses to travel in? Was it sure that we could get kosher food on the ship? And with the questions poured in suggestions, and solid chunks of advice were rammed in by nimble prophecies. Mother ought to make a pilgrimage to a good Jew, say, the Rebbe of Lubavitch, to get his blessing on our journey. She must be sure and pack her prayer books and Bible, and twenty pounds of zwieback at the least. If they did serve trefa on the ship, she and the four children would have to starve, unless she carried provisions from home. Oh, she must take all the feather beds. Feather beds are scarce in America. In America they sleep on hard mattresses, even in winter. Hava Mirel, Yakna the dressmaker's daughter, who emigrated to New York two years ago, wrote her mother that she got up from child bed with sore sides, because she had no feather bed. Mother mustn't carry her money in a pocket book. She must sew it into the lining of her jacket. The policemen in Castle Garden take all their money from the passengers as they land, unless the travelers deny having any. And so on, and so on, till my poor mother was completely bewildered. And as the day set for our departure approached, the people came oftener and stayed longer, and rehearsed my mother in long messages for their friends in America, praying that she deliver them promptly on her arrival, and without fail, and might God bless her for her kindness, and she must be sure to write them how she found their friends. Haya Devoshi, the wig-maker, for the eleventh time repeating herself, to my mother, still patiently attentive, thus— Promise me, I beg you, I don't sleep nights for thinking of him. I migrated to America eighteen months ago, fresh and well and strong, with twenty-five rouble in his pocket, besides his steamer ticket, with new phylacteries, and a silk skull-cap, and a suit as good as new, made it only three years before. Everything respectable, there could be nothing better. Sent one letter, how he arrived in Castle Garden, how well he was received by his uncle's son-in-law, how he was conducted to the baths how they bought him an American suit. Everything good, fine, pleasant. Wrote how his relative promised him a position in his business. A clothing merchant is he. 
makes gold, and since then not a postal card, not a word, just as if he had vanished, as if the earth had swallowed him. Oy vey, what haven't I imagined, what haven't I dreamed, what haven't I lamented? Already three letters have I sent. The last one, you know, you wrote yourself for me, Hanahaya, dear, and no answer. Lost, as if in the sea. And after the application of a corner of her shawl to eyes and nose, Haya Devoshi, continuing, So you will go into the newspaper, and ask them what has become of my mashala, and if he isn't in Castle Garden, maybe he went up to Baltimore. It's in the neighborhood, you know. And you can tell them, for a mark, that he has a silk handkerchief with his monogram in Russian, that his betrothed embroidered for him before the engagement was broken. And may God grant you an easy journey, and may you arrive in a propitious hour, and may you find your husband well and strong and rich, and may you both live to lead your children to the wedding canopy, and may America shower gold on you. Amen. The weeks skipped, the days took wing, and hour was a flash of thought. So brimful of events was the interval before our departure, and no one was more alive than I to the multiple significance of the daily drama. My mother, full of grief at the parting from home and family, and all things dear, anxious about the journey, uncertain about the future, but ready, as ever, to take up what new burdens awaited her. My sister, one with our mother in every hope and apprehension. My brother, rejoicing in his sudden release from Hedder. And the little sister, vaguely excited by mysteries afoot. The uncles and aunts and devoted neighbors, sad and solemn over their coming loss and my father away over in Boston, eager and anxious about us in Polotsk, an American citizen impatient to start his children on American careers. I knew the minds of every one of these, and I lived their days and nights with them, after an apish fashion of my own. But at bottom I was aloof from them all. What made me silent and big-eyed was the sense of being in the midst of a tremendous adventure. From morning till night I was all attention— I must credit myself with some pang of parting. I certainly felt the thrill of expectation, but keener than these was my delight in the progress of the great adventure. It was delightful just to be myself. I rejoiced, with the younger children, during the weeks of packing and preparation, in the relaxation of discipline, and the general demoralization of our daily life. It was pleasant to be petted and spoiled by favorite cousins, and stuffed with belated sweets by unfavorite ones. It was distinctly interesting to catch my mother weeping in corner cupboards over precious rubbish that could by no means be carried to America. It was agreeable to have my Uncle Moses stroke my hair and regard me with affectionate eyes, while he told me that I would soon forget him, and asked me, so coaxingly, to write him an account of our journey. It was delicious to be notorious through the length and breadth of Polotsk, to be stopped and questioned at every shop door, when I ran out to buy two kopecks worth of butter, to be treated with respect by my former playmates, if ever I found time to mingle with them, to be pointed at by my enemies, as I passed them importantly on the street. And all my delight and pride and interest were steeped in a super-feeling, the sense that it was I, Mashka, I myself, that was moving and acting in the midst of unusual events. Now that I was sure of America, I was in no hurry to depart, and not impatient to arrive. I was willing to linger over every detail of our progress, and so cherish the flavor of the adventure. The last night in Polotsk we slept at my uncle's house, having disposed of all our belongings, to the last three-legged stool, except such as we were taking with us. 
I could go straight to the room where I slept with my aunt that night, if I were suddenly set down in Polotsk. But I did not really sleep. Excitement kept me awake, and my aunt snored hideously. In the morning I was going away from Polotsk, forever and ever. I was going on a wonderful journey. I was going to America. How could I sleep? My uncle gave out a false bulletin, with the last batch that the gossips carried away in the evening. He told them that we were not going to start till the second day. This he did in the hope of smuggling us quietly out, and so saving us the wear and tear of a public farewell. But his ruse failed of success. Half of Polotsk was at my uncle's gate in the morning, to conduct us to the railway station, and the other half was already there before we arrived. The procession resembled both a funeral and a triumph. The woman wept over us, reminding us eloquently of the perils of the sea, of the bewilderment of a foreign land, of the torments of homesickness that awaited us. They bewailed my mother's lot, who had to tear herself away from blood relations to go among strangers, who had to face gendarmes, ticket agents, and sailors, unprotected by a masculine escort, who had to care for four young children in the confusion of travel, and very likely feed them treffa or see them starve on the way. Or they praised her for a brave pilgrim, and expressed confidence in her ability to cope with the gendarmes and ticket agents, and blessed her with every other word, and all but carried her in their arms. At the station the procession disbanded and became a mob. My uncle and my tall cousins did their best to protect us, but we wanderers were almost torn to pieces. They did get us into a car at last, but the riot on the station platform continued unquelled. When the warning bell rang out, it was drowned in a confounding babble of voices, fragments of the oft-repeated messages, admonitions, lamentations, blessings, farewells, don't forget, take care of, keep your tickets, mashallah, newspapers, garlic is best, happy journey, God help you, good-bye, good-bye, remember, the last I saw of Polotsk was an agitated mass of people, waving colored handkerchiefs and other frantic bits of calico, madly gesticulating, falling on each other's necks, gone wild altogether. Then the station became invisible, and the shining tracks spun out from sky to sky. I was in the middle of the great, great world, and the longest road was mine. Memory may take a rest while I copy from a contemporaneous document the story of the great voyage. In accordance with my promise to my uncle, I wrote, during my first months in America, a detailed account of our adventures between Polotsk and Boston. Ink was cheap, and the epistle, in Yiddish, occupied me for many hot summer hours. It was a great disaster, therefore, to have a lamp upset on my writing-table, when I was near the end, soaking the thick pile of letter-sheets in kerosene. I was obliged to make a fair copy for my uncle, and my father kept the oily, smelly original. After a couple of years' teasing, he induced me to translate the letter into English, for the benefit of a friend who did not know Yiddish. For the benefit of the present narrative, which was not thought of thirteen years ago, I can hardly refrain from moralizing as I turn to the leaves of my childish manuscript, grateful at last for the calamity of the overturned lamp. Our route lay over the German border, with Hamburg for our port. On the way to the frontier, we stopped for a farewell visit in Vilna, where my mother had a brother. Vilna is slighted in my description. I find special mention of only two things, the horse-cars and the bookstores. On a gray, wet morning in April, we set out for the frontier. This was the real beginning of our journey, and all my faculties of observation were alert. I took note of everything, 
the weather, the trains, the bustle of railroad stations, our fellow passengers, and the family mood at every stage of our progress. The bags and bundles which composed our traveling outfit were much more bulky than valuable. A trifling sum of money, the steamer ticket, and the foreign passport were the magic agents by means of which we hoped to span the five thousand miles of earth and water between us and my father. The passport was supposed to pass us over the frontier without any trouble. But on account of the prevalence of cholera in some parts of the country, the poorer sort of travelers, such as immigrants, were subjected at this time to more than ordinary supervision and regulation. At Verspolova, the last station on the Russian side, we met the first of our troubles. A German physician and several gendarmes boarded the train and put us through a searching examination as to our health, destination, and financial resources. As a result of the Inquisition, we were informed that we would not be allowed to cross the frontier unless we exchanged our third-class steamer tickets for second-class, which would require two hundred roubles more than we possessed. Our passport was taken from us, and we were to be turned back on our journey. My letter describes the situation. We were homeless, houseless, and friendless in a strange place. We had hardly money enough to last us through the voyage, for which we had hoped and waited for three long years. We had suffered much that the reunion we longed for might come about. We had prepared ourselves to suffer more in order to bring it about, and had parted with those we loved, with places that were dear to us in spite of what we passed through in them, never again to see them, as we were convinced, all for the same dear end. With strong hopes and high spirits that hid the sad parting, we had started on our long journey. And now we were checked so unexpectedly but surely, the blow coming from where we little expected it, being, as we believed, safe in that quarter. When my mother had recovered enough to speak, she began to argue with the gendarme, telling him our story, and begging him to be kind. The children were frightened, and all but I cried. I was only wondering what would happen. Moved by our distress, the German officers gave us the best advice they could. We were to get out at the station of Kibart on the Russian side, and apply to one Herr Skodorsi, who might help us on our way. The letter goes on. We are in Kibart at the depot. The least important particular even of that place I noticed and remembered. How the porter, he was an ugly, grinning man, carried in our things and put them away in the southern corner of the big room, on the floor. How we sat down on a settee near them. A yellow settee. How the glass roof let in so much light that we had to shade our eyes, because the car had been dark, and we had been crying. How there were only a few people besides ourselves there. And how I began to count them, and stopped when I noticed a sign over the head of the fifth person. A little woman with a red nose and a pimple on it, and tried to read the German, with the aid of the Russian translation below. I noticed all this, and remembered it, as if there were nothing else in the world for me to think of. The letter dwells gratefully on the kindness of Herr Skodorsky, who became the agent of our salvation. He procured my mother a pass to Itkunyan, the German frontier station, where his older brother, as chairman of a well-known emigrant aid association, arranged for our admission into Germany. During the negotiations, which took several days, the good man of Kabart entertained us in his own house, shabby emigrants though we were. The Shadorsky brothers were Jews but it is not on that account that their name has been lovingly remembered for fifteen years in my family. On the German side, our course joined that of many other emigrant groups, on their way to Hamburg and other ports. We were a clumsy enough crowd, with wide, unsophisticated eyes, with awkward bundles hugged in our arms, and our hearts set on America. 
The letter to my uncle faithfully describes every stage of our bustling progress. Here is a sample scene of many that I recorded. There was a terrible confusion in the baggage room where we were directed to go. Boxes, baskets, bags, valises, and great shapeless things belonging to no particular class were thrown about by porters and other men, who sorted them and put tickets on all but those containing provisions, while others were opened and examined in haste. At last our turn came, and our things, along with those of all other American-bound travelers, were taken away to be steamed and smoked, and other such processes gone through. We were told to wait till notice should be given us of something else to be done. The phrases, we were told to do this, and told to do that, occur again and again in my narrative, and the most effective handling of the facts could give no more vivid picture of the proceedings. We emigrants were herded at the stations, packed in the cars, and driven from place to place like cattle. At the expected hour we all tried to find room in a car indicated by the conductor. We tried, but could only find enough space on the floor for our baggage, on which we made believe sitting comfortably for now we were obliged to exchange the comparative comforts of a third-class passenger train for the certain discomforts of a fourth-class one. There were only four narrow benches in the whole car, and about twice as many people were already seated on these as they were probably supposed to accommodate. All other space, to the last inch, was crowded by passengers or their luggage. It was very hot and close and altogether uncomfortable, and still at every new station fresh passengers came crowding in, and actually made room, spare as it was, for themselves. It became so terrible that all glared madly at the conductor as he allowed more people to come into that prison, and trembled at the announcement of every station. I cannot see even now how the officers could allow such a thing. It was really dangerous. The following is my attempt to describe a flying glimpse of a metropolis. Towards evening we came into Berlin. I grow dizzy even now when I think of our whirling through that city. It seemed we were going faster and faster all the time. But it was only the whirl of trains passing in opposite directions and close to us that made it seem so. The sight of crowds of people, such as we had never seen before, hurrying to and fro, in and out of great depots that danced past us, helped to make it more so. Strange sights, splendid buildings, shops, people, and animals, all mingled in one great confused mass of a disposition to continually move in a great hurry, wildly, with no other aim but to make one's head go round and round, in following its dreadful motions. Round and round went my head. It was nothing but trains, depots, crowds. Crowds, depots, trains. Again and again, with no beginning, no end, only a mad dance. Faster and faster we go, faster still, and the noise increases with the speed. Bells, whistles, hammers, locomotives shrieking madly, men's voices, peddlers' cries, horses' hoofs, dogs barking, all united in doing their best to drown every other sound but their own, and made such a deafening uproar in the attempt that nothing could keep it out. The plight of the bewildered emigrant on the way to foreign parts is always pitiful enough, but for us who came from plague-ridden Russia the terrors of the way were doubled. In a great lonely field, opposite a solitary house within a large yard, our train pulled up at last, and a conductor commanded the passengers to make haste and get out. He need not have told us to hurry. We were glad enough to be free again, after such a long imprisonment, in the uncomfortable car. All rushed to the door. We breathed more freely in the open field. But the conductor did not wait for us to enjoy our freedom. He hurried us into the one large room which made up the house, and then into the yard. Here a great many men and women, dressed in white, received us. 
the women attending to the women and girls of the passengers, and the men to the others. This was another scene of bewildering confusion, parents losing their children, and little ones crying, baggage being thrown together in one corner of the yard, heedless of contents, which suffered in consequence. Those white-clad Germans shouting commands, always accompanied with, Quick, quick! The confused passengers obeying all orders like meek children, only questioning now and then what was going to be done with them. And no wonder, if in some minds stories arose of people being captured by robbers, murderers, and the like. Here we had been taken to a lonely place where only that house was to be seen. Our things were taken away, our friends separated from us. A man came to inspect us, as if to ascertain our full value. Strange-looking people driving us about like dumb animals, helpless and unresisting. Children we could not see crying, in a way that suggested terrible things. Ourselves driven into a little room, where a great kettle was boiling on a little stove. Our clothes taken off, our bodies rubbed with a slippery substance that might be any bad thing. A shower of warm water let down on us without warning. Again driven to another little room where we sit, wrapped in woolen blankets, till large coarse bags are brought in, their contents turned out, and we see only a cloud of steam, and hear the woman's orders to dress ourselves. Quick, quick, or else we'll miss. Something we cannot hear. We are forced to pick out our clothes from among all the others, with the steam blinding us. We choke, cough, entreat the woman to give us time. They persist. Quick, quick, or you'll miss the train. Oh, so we really won't be murdered. They are only making us ready for the continuing of our journey, cleaning us of all suspicions of dangerous sickness. Thank God. In Polotsk, if the cholera broke out, as it did once or twice in every generation, we made no such fuss as did these Germans. Those who died of the sickness were buried, and those who lived ran to the synagogues to pray. We travelers felt hurt at the way the Germans treated us. My mother nearly died of cholera once, but she was given a new name, a lucky one, which saved her, and that was when she was a small girl. None of us were sick now, yet hear how we were treated. Those gendarmes and nurses always shouted their commands at us from a distance, as fearful of our touch as if we had been lepers. We arrived in Hamburg early one morning, after a long night in the crowded cars. We were marched up to a strange vehicle, long and narrow and high, drawn by two horses and commanded by a mute driver. We were piled up on this wagon, our baggage was thrown after us, and we started on a sightseeing tour across the city of Hamburg. The sights I faithfully enumerate for the benefit of my uncle include little carts drawn by dogs and big cars that run of themselves, later identified as electric cars. The humorous side of our adventures did not escape me. Again and again I come across a laugh in the long pages of the historic epistle. The description of the ride through Hamburg ends with this. The sightseeing was not all on our side. I noticed many people stopping to look at us as if amused though most passed by us as though used to seeing such sights. We did make a queer appearance, all in a long row, up above people's heads. In fact, we looked like a flock of giant fowls roosting, only wide awake. The smiles and shivers fairly crowded each other in some parts of our career. Suddenly, when everything interesting seemed at an end, we all recollected how long it was since we had started on our funny ride. Hours, we thought, and still the horses ran. Now we rode through quieter streets, where there were fewer shops and more wooden houses. Still the horses seemed to have but just started. I looked over our perch again. Something made me think of a description I had read of criminals being carried on long journeys, in uncomfortable things. Like this? Well, it was strange, this long, long drive, 
the conveyance, no word of explanation, and all, though going different ways, being packed off together. We were strangers, the driver knew it. He might take us anywhere, how could we tell? I was frightened again, as in Berlin. The faces around me confessed the same. Yes, we are frightened. We are very still. Some Polish women over there have fallen asleep. And the rest of us look such a picture of woe, and yet so funny, it is a sight to see and remember. Our mysterious ride came to an end on the outskirts of the city, where we were once more lined up, cross-questioned, disinfected, labeled, and pigeonholed. This was one of the occasions when we suspected that we were the victims of a conspiracy to extort money from us. For here, as at every repetition of the purifying operations we had undergone, a fee was levied on us, so much per head. My mother, indeed, seeing her tiny hoard melting away, had long since sold some articles from our baggage to a fellow-passenger richer than she. But even so, she did not have enough money to pay the fee demanded of her in Hamburg. Her statement was not accepted, and we all suffered the lasting dignity of having our person searched. The last place of detention turned out to be a prison. Quarantine, they called it, and there was a great deal of it, two weeks of it. Two weeks within high brick walls, several hundred of us herded in half a dozen compartments, numbered compartments, sleeping in rows, like sick people in a hospital, with roll-call morning and night, and short rations three times a day, with never a sign of the free world beyond our barred windows, with anxiety and longing and homesickness in our hearts, and in our ears the unfamiliar voice of the invisible ocean, which drew and repelled us at the same time. The fortnight in quarantine was not an episode— it was an epoch, divisible into eras, periods, events. The greatest event was the arrival of some ship to take some of the waiting passengers. When the gates were opened, and the lucky ones said good-bye, those left behind felt hopeless of ever seeing the gates open for them. It was both pleasant and painful, for the strangers grew to be fast friends in a day, and really rejoiced in each other's fortune. But the regretful envy could not be helped either. Our turn came at last. We were conducted through the gate of departure, and after some hours of bewildering maneuvers, described in great detail in the report to my uncle, we found ourselves, we five frightened pilgrims from Polotsk, on the deck of a great big steamship, afloat on the strange big waters of the ocean. For sixteen days the ship was our world. My letter dwells solemnly on the details of the life at sea, as if afraid to cheat my uncle of the smallest circumstance. It does not shrink from describing the torments of seasickness. It notes every change in the weather. A rough night is described, when the ship is pitched and rolled, so that people were thrown from their berths. Days and nights, when we crawled through dense fogs, our foghorn drawing answering warnings from invisible ships. The perils of the sea were not minimized in the imaginations of us inexperienced voyagers. The captain and his officers ate their dinners, smoked their pipes, and slept soundly in their turns while we frightened emigrants turned our faces to the wall and awaited our watery graves. All this while the seasickness lasted, then came happy hours on deck, with fugitive sunshine, birds atop the crested waves, band music, and dancing and fun. I explored the ship, made friends with officers and crew, or pursued my thoughts in quiet nooks. It was my first experience of the ocean, and I was profoundly moved. Oh, what solemn thoughts I had! How deeply I felt the greatness, the power of the scene! The immeasurable distance from horizon to horizon! The huge billows forever changing their shapes! Now only a wavy and rolling plain, now a chain of great mountains, coming and going farther away! 
then a town in the distance, perhaps, with spires and towers, and buildings of gigantic dimensions, and mostly a vast mass of uncertain shapes, knocking against each other in fury, and seething and foaming in their anger, the grey sky, with its mountains of gloomy clouds, flying, moving with the waves, as it seemed, very near them, the absence of any object besides the one ship, and the deep, solemn groans of the sea, sounding as if all the voices of the world had been turned into sighs, and then gathered into that one mournful sound. So deeply did I feel the presence of these things, that the feeling became one of awe, both painful and sweet, and stirring and warming, and deep and calm and grand. I would imagine myself all alone on the ocean, and Robinson Crusoe was very real to me. I was alone sometimes. I was aware of no human presence. I was conscious only of sea and sky, and something I did not understand. And as I listened to its solemn voice, I felt as if I had found a friend, and knew that I loved the ocean. It seemed as if it were within, as well as without, part of myself, and I wondered how I had lived without it, and if I could ever part with it. And so, suffering, fearing, brooding, rejoicing, we crept nearer and nearer to the coveted shore, until, on a glorious May morning, six weeks after our departure from Polotsk, our eyes beheld the promised land, and my father received us in his arms. End of chapter 8